Welcome to the To Read List. I'm Bailey, and this is a podcast where I attempt to get through the 118 unread books on my shelf. With me, as always, is my friend Toby. Hey, 118, huh? Uh-huh. What an interesting number. Yep, my mm-hmm. brother Andrew. Oh, wait, sorry, 118? Yeah, I said oh, it. Oh, interesting very, number. Very, I said it very smugly, and uh, yeah, my husband Dylan's the sound recordist. So that's 118? Yep, correct. Mm-hmm. Moment in time preserved. Hello, everyone. <laughs> Hello. Oh, I see what's happening here. Yeah. So, you know, we're just hinting that that, Shame. Num- that number Shame. might change. But, you know, let's talk about some other stuff first. Shame. <laughs> like the good news that my brother got married. Dylan's brother got married. Good job. Mm-hmm. Congratulations, brother Dylan. Congratulations, Dylan brother. I don't know if he wants his name on the podcast, so we'll just say Dylan brother. Dylan brother. I like that. Yeah, we've been doing a lot of traveling recently. We came back from Telluride. I have to say something about the bookstore in Telluride, but that's just a little teaser. Um, and then we went to Oregon for Dylan's brother's wedding. Mm-hmm. Astute Pages might remember last week on the podcast, I mentioned that my favorite place in the world is sitting on the deck of a bookstore in Telluride called Between the Covers, enjoying a coffee or tea while I read a book. Everybody remembers that, right? I'm an astute Pedro. Great. Yeah. So um, when I went to Telluride, that bookstore was gone. What? No. Finish it, Bailey. Mm, so I was really what? devastated. This is like the most upsetting thing Bailey. to happen to me this year. Definitely. And Just wait, Toby. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So yeah, end of story. Bailey, oh, when you okay. say gone, do you mean it's there's no longer that bookstore in Telluride? <sighs> okay, so, well, it's not in that building. Is it in the building <laughs> next door? No. Is it the building two stores down? Yes. Does it have oh. a bigger porch now and a much fancier coffee shop? Yes. Did they expand a little? Yes. <laughs> this sounds great. For context, Bailey like texted me saying how disappointed she was. And I was like, oh, no, they closed. That's so awful. She framed it as though the store closed. And lo and behold, <laughs> no, it expanded to a better location with more space. And nothing has changed except for you can get better coffee. Um, A lot has <laughs> changed. Yeah, you can get cocktails now, too. There's more room to walk around. I don't like that. <laughs> you know what, Bailey? I'm going to have a rare Toby take here. I'm on your side. Yes. That, you know. You have nostalgia for a particular place, a particular deck. It's not the same. It's not the same place. So, you know, you are you are legitimized in your mourning. Thank you, Toby. And to be clear, this isn't something I've been to like once before. This is every September for the past 16 years. And now it's different mm-hmm. and there's change. And I didn't sign up for that. Yeah. <sighs> Who signs up for change? I know. Okay, so that's dead to me. Um, it's dead to you. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. I'm, I, I don't know if I can follow you there, Bailey. Did you buy any books from there? Maybe. Oh, you did? I was with you most of the time. What? I mean, you weren't, but... (laughs) Uh, Yes, I I did buy one book from that bookstore. What book? It's called Big Swiss. Apparently, it's very good, like, sort of like sex comedy, I think. You've seen that cover. The lady looks kind of like a milkmaid just going, oh. Oh, yeah, I've seen this cover. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) I haven't seen it, but I can't imagine it. So, yes... I did get that shame. I also come to find out Toby had left a book for my birthday at our local bookstore, Chevalier's. Heck yeah. When I ran into you at the wedding, Toby was like, did you like that copy of Jade City? And I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, it's September. I put it there in July. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Yeah, I was concerned. I was like, surely there's no reason why you shouldn't already have it. You're in there every day. But no. I did go in there a lot. There was one time they were like, oh, we have something for you, but never followed up. Regardless, thank you for the book, Jade City. So those are two books of shame I added to my list. That's it. Yep. Oh, that's it. Interesting. Uh Uh-huh. Where was the wedding, though? The wedding was in Portland, Oregon, or thereabouts. What's in Portland, Oregon, or thereabouts? Um, There might be a famous bookstore. Called? Powell's Books. Powell's City of Books. Toby went there and bought books. How many times did you go, Bailey? Two times. Toby? Yes. Tell us about your shame at Powell's Books. Oh, yes. I'm dripping with shame. I'm so shamed. I have three whole books I got from Powell's. Three? That's insane. (laughs) 
I know. I can't believe the the irresponsibility that I had to engage in. First of all, I will say, if you ever are in Portland and you guys like books, check out Powell's City of Books. It is truly an incredible place. They call it the City of Books. It is for sure the biggest bookstore I've ever been in, but not big in like an empty feeling way. It's big in like a secret rooms and then you go down a stairway and there's more books kind of way. It's very exciting. It just keeps going. There's so many books. Yes. Like the city. It draws you in and it's like Mm -hmm. you find one that's perfect that you've always wanted that's on sale and it's like breaking the seal and then once you choose that one suddenly you find yourself carrying a lot of books and then you find yourself getting a tote bag and a person who works there says we don't like people to put stuff in tote bags. Can you put it in this basket? And then all of a sudden you find yourself pushing a cart that contains two baskets um, of books, right? Everybody experienced that. No, that doesn't really mirror my experience. I more wandered around and gathered a, a nice, comfy handful of books, the titles of which I'll tell you now. Great. I got uh, a book called Orsinian Tales, which is by your girl, Ursula K. Le Guin. I mainly got it because Louise and I have an awesome uh, set of mass market paperbacks of the Earthsea trilogy that are with these like 60s pencil illustration covers. And this book matches that. It's like in brand new condition. So I'm pretty happy about that. Nice. I got a book called The Reason for the Darkness of the Night, which is a biography of Edgar Allan Poe. And that is by an author named John Tresh. And this has popped up kind of around. I've just seen it around and I've wanted to read it. And I will confess the cover is really cool. So that's part of why I got it. Okay. And then um, I took the chance to support a somewhat small business and buy Assassin's Quest, which is the third in the Farseer trilogy. Louise and I are right now reading to each other. We're reading Royal Assassin by Robin Hobb. That's number two in the Farseer trilogy. And I figured, why not get ahead of the game? Go ahead and pick up number three, because I know we're going to get into it. I'm very excited. Although I'm not super a fan of the cover of this one. If you're familiar with this edition, it has Fitz Chivalry kind of like hunked out. He looks like, I don't know. He looks like a contestant on The Bachelor. I don't really love it, but I love the books. So there you go. And getting a third book had nothing to do with me saying, Toby, you're making me look bad. You need more shame, right? <laughs> no, uh, not at all. I, I, I really, you can tell. That was such a good reason to get a book that I really wanted. Okay, I got nine books. I got nine new books at Powell's. Nine? That adds to Big Swiss. So that's 10 total. Well, plus Jade City. That's 11 total. Oh, my word. So we had 118. So what is it? 129? Yep. Mm-hmm. Back up above that number we have on our promotional bookmarks. Also, I pre-ordered a book that comes in next week. So that'll end up being 130. <laughs> All right. List them titles. Okay. Yes. I'll just, you know, rip the bandaid off, tell the shame. These are the titles. Okay. So Margaret and the Mystery of the Missing Body by Megan Milks. Who doesn't like a detective named Margaret? This Mm -hmm. book is called Everything the Darkness Eats by Eric LaRocca. It is a very scary queer horror book. Then See What I Have Done by Sarah Schmidt. This is a retelling of, what's her name? Lizzie Borden. Then Beach Read by (laughs) Emily Henry. You might have heard of it. Cool romance. That's also a retelling of Lizzie Borden, right? Yeah, I think all of these are actually so far. (laughs) Yep. Um, And then there's this book called Empty Theater by Jack Jamak. It's about the princess... What's her name from Austria? Cece. But it's by the guy, the person who wrote The Grip of It, which is a horror story. So that interested me. That was a sudden buy. Then Little Eve by Catriona Ward. That's another horror book. The Red Car by Marcy Demansky, which is a book that was recommended to me. Kill Creek, which is by Scott Thomas, another scary book. Um, and then last <laughs> but not least, Made for Love by Alyssa Nutting. So anyway, basically, I went crazy. um, And then also that doesn't even count the books I got for Maggie, which necessitated a second cart. But yeah, it's spooky season, guys. I got to get some spooky books. Nice. Yeah. So that's my shame. So that's all I have to say. I mean, honestly, those all sound like delightful books (laughs) that I would like to read as well. So, you know, it really takes the zing out of roasting you for shame when I would want all those books. Yeah. And if I didn't buy them, there would be no podcast. So you're welcome. Well, there'd still be 118 more podcasts before we ran out. Yeah, I mean, but that's not that long. Anyway, if you want to see our shame, (laughs) you can look at the picture that's up on Instagram, me versus Toby. Andrew, did you read a book this week? Well, I had shame. No one wants to ask me though that's fine hey andrew i have some questions for you do you have any shame 
I do. It's minor shame. I bought the first five books in the Miss Marple series as sort of a box set because I've been enjoying reading Agatha Christie recently. Mm-hmm. I started The Murder at the Vicarage. In terms of how I'm going to handle this as the podcast, I'm thinking about sort of a kind of Russian roulette where I'll put whatever one I'm on on the list. And if that gets picked, I have to finish the box set. Mm. I'm hoping I'll, to get through that before it happens. But who was the one that purchased them for you? Dun, dun, dun. I purchased them for myself. <gasps> what a twist. Oh. Mystery solved. <laughs> okay. We all bought the books for Andrew. I like that Russian roulette, though. Andrew, I have some more questions for you. Oh, okay. What's up? Slash only one more. Did you read a book this week? I did. I read a book. Oh, nice. Called wow. I Have Some Questions for You by your friend and my, Rebecca Mackay. Rebecca Mackay. Wow. All right, so you folks have made it clear. And then for Pedro's coming in, who haven't listened to a lot of our backlog, all three of these punks have read this book. So now it all comes down to me. Every time they've read it, they've like hinted about their review, but not said anything. And now it all comes down to me to present a formal review. And we'll have to see how much y'all interrupt and have your own feelings about the book. Thanks for being the guy in the group project that does all the work for us. Thanks. Bye. Yay. And Pedro's, if this is your first episode, Andrew is for sure the surly one who gets angry at everybody. That's his his uh, identity on the podcast. <laughs> I'm so excited to see if he gets this review right or not. Oh, great. <laughs> All right. We each had a nice little zippy thing to say. Go ahead, Andrew. You can, you can talk again. I'm really glad because I'm imagining that's going to happen after every like orc and elf I throw in about this book. <laughs> and this will be a four hour podcast. All right. No. So, uh, yes, I'm very excited about this book. It was a new release by an author who uh, we, we covered um, The Great Believers earlier this year. Crazy that that was just earlier this year. Mm. And Bailey and I both really liked it. So new Mackay, sign me up. And here's a little logline for you Pedros out there. Rebecca Mackay's latest novel follows podcaster Bodie Kane as she returns to her elite boarding school in rural New Hampshire to teach elective courses to current students. The school, Granby, was not just home to four of her formative years, but the location of her junior year roommate's murder. While someone was imprisoned for the crime, Bodie's lingering doubts are slowly coming to the surface. I Have Some Questions for You is a book about certainty, consequences, and the echoes of violence of all shades and severity. All right, so let's workshop his um, logline. What do you guys think? Yeah, at first we need a definition of the word logline, but otherwise it was great. Did he talk about podcasting? I also don't think Bodie's a good name. Can we call her something else? <laughs> okay, I'm going to stop. Sorry, Andrew, continue. So just a little more plot help for you, maybe confused by what I just said. So Granby is the private school that Bodie Kane went to. She was a scholarship student sent sort of very much not from like a wealthy background, which a lot of the students who were there were. The school is framed as sort of like an elite private school, but not like the top fanciest ever. So like some people were able to get in who maybe had struggled a little bit earlier. And and Bodie was one of those people. She way after graduating from high school, returns to teach a podcasting because she's basically Karina Longworth. She has a podcast about mm. about like the golden age of Hollywood to teach a podcasting course and to teach a course on film history, Bailey, um, yep. in yep. rural New Hampshire, yep. <laughs> Bailey. Um, <laughs> Hitting a lot of boxes here. Yep. Yeah. And so there she comes for this like two week thing, which is called like mini term, feb term, forget the exact term they use for it, but it's like two weeks where the students are on campus, but it's not a full semester. And they get to take sort of more creative classes. So she's a guest superstar. And it's a complicated thing for her coming back to the school because not only, you know, had she not been back a whole lot since she graduated, her junior year roommate Thalia was murdered during <gasps> their senior year. The school's athletic trainer, who is a, a black man, was put behind bars for it. And as she spends more time on campus, she sort of starts to needle down about thinking maybe the wrong man is in prison. And one of her students in her podcast courses of course wants to make a podcast about the crime Mm. and it's hilarious she can't be like oh no i'm definitely interested in all of your podcast ideas certainly certainly not mostly (laughs) interested in this one yeah it becomes pretty clear who her favorite in the class is pretty soon (laughs) and that's brit who is the student who's making the podcast so that's um that's most of the book later on there's a bit of a time jump and we get very contemporary i won't tell you why and so that's the setup and I'm going to go into Orcs and Elves. Anything you think I missed that's important context, y'all? You're doing a great job. 
Wonderful job, Andrew. I also contributed to this project. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, going into my orcs and elves, let's start with some elves. Ooh. It is, I think, a very gripping book. And Mackay really nailed the pacing of it because the, the chapters are, are, she varies length of chapters really well. It's really easy to sort of just, you know, read one more. I'm going to dub this the, the just one more factor. And this book had it mm. because it was real easy to just, I can read another one, even though it's one in the morning now. Uh, Andrew's spinoff podcast is the Just One More Factor, by the way, guys. Yes, it's true. <laughs> and I also found some of what happens in the book genuinely surprising. So combine a good pace with some actual surprises. Count me mm. in. All right. Also, I thought the characters were really clearly drawn and really well drawn. Like they get a lot of detail and they all feel like real people, which I like in particular. I shout out about the students in her podcasting class. I thought yeah. they were all very mm-hmm. clearly depicted, very <laughs> believable high school students. Very Gen Z. Very Gen Z. But I really liked them. In particular, shout out Alder. Alder, my king. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> my based king. That wasn't just true of the of the high school students. She really goes out of her way to give really good details and really clear character descriptions. Not surprising, having read The Great Believers. This is one of her like strengths as a, as a writer. Agreed. And it's also super fun just to throw in one more thing. You see a lot of characters described as high school students and as adults. So you get like their before and after. And that's also just a fun thing, which, which yeah. Mackay makes good use of. I like the tension, like they maybe they were like enemies or something, or there was beef between them as teenagers, and so now they're adults and they have to like be like mature. Yeah, they're like, oh wait, you have kids. Let's talk about our kids. Even though earlier <laughs> you were really mean to me. <laughs> I don't know, another sort of elf, this is sort of minor, but it's maybe the first book I've read that's sort of hyper contemporary. Some of it yeah. is set in like late 2021, early 2022, and like incorporates the pandemic in a really believable and true way and like other real world of events so it like just seems like a really believable story because of that grounding andrew you're hitting it out of the park with this review i agree with all this stuff you're doing such a good job thank you dylan you're making me sound sarcastic i truly meant that I truly meant it too, Andrew. You're doing a really good job. All right. Um, two more quick elves. It really hits on some sort of personal sweet spots, as I'm sure it did for Bailey as well, in terms what? of things that I'm interested in, you know, or, or that are part of my background, you know, podcasting, New England, true crime, and sort of the complicated implications of like consuming true crime. Very cool stuff. Hmm. Just shout out, just piggyback off, you know, my fellow person working on this project. They really nail rural New Hampshire elite boarding school. As someone who went to a school like that, it feels very believable. Yeah, they mention a Hanover a fair amount, Bailey. How did that make you feel? Um, Seen, I would say. Honored? Well, also like the dynamic between like scholarship student versus um, legacy student. But I don't I don't know what you're going to say next. I don't want to spoil your review. Yeah. I mean, my next review is that I liked Bodhi, the narrator. Okay. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> uh, so that doesn't that doesn't really cover that. And I call that out because I'm not going to throw my friend under the bus, but a friend of mine who'd also read this book really disliked it and said that the reason for that was because he didn't like the narrator. Um, and I was like, so and so I came into this book and was like, oh, okay, what what's going to go wrong here? And I was like, no, this seems like a very believable, you know, somewhat flawed, but all in all, someone I want to root for a person. And I thought they mm. got the right amount of fallible and infallible about the narrator. So your friend is wrong. Oh, I don't know. I might I might agree with your friend in the end. When you get to the orcs, I might chime in with the orc about Bodhi. All right. Ooh. So those are my elves. Now let's visit Isengard and mm. see some of the Urukai. So I felt like maybe there was one too many things going on in the book. Mm. You know, it's about a 430 page book. There's enough room to really dig into certain things. But there was like one or two like right turns that didn't necessarily turn into, you know, full highways to go down that sort of she sort of <laughs> doubled back on pretty quickly that I was like, did we really need that? Could we have streamlined? Could we have like given more time to other things that you that become more important to the story? So it's one sort yeah. of small orc in particular. Sorry to this character. I'm sure he's lovely, but there's a character named Yahav who like gets a lot of weight in the story but doesn't actually no spoilers maybe doesn't impact it that much also he's off screen for a lot of it too so yeah and then part of the way the book is written is um Bodhi has suspicions about a specific alternate suspect who she thinks committed the murder of Thalia and the book is 
sometimes, maybe always, sort of written in direct address to that person. Mm -hmm. But the reason you can sort of tell that I'm sort of vacillating on it is it didn't always work for me because it was unclear when it was actually doing that, when it wasn't, when she was talking to a reader, when she was talking to this direct address thing that she was doing. Mm -hmm. And I just felt like it was a big swing to do. I liked it in some places, but I didn't know that it completely hit for me. Mm Mm-hmm. And then sort of an overall orc is I liked the first half of the book more than the second. Well, I would heavily agree with that one. Yeah. Yeah. So that's just an overall sort of thing for me. Before I reveal my stars, what orcs or elves do you three want to throw in? Um, I'll say I agree with all of your elves. I just, I won't restate them, but yeah, heavily agree with all those. My orc was maybe like your friend with Bodhi. Um, I felt like the later we got in the book, the more she was putting pressure on her students to do things that were not cool to me. Like she was making them break the rules, do stuff they could get in trouble for. Just stuff where I was like, okay, I think you're supposed to be like the responsible one here. And there's ways to go about this where like you don't put students kind of in the line, not of like real danger, but just it just felt kind of icky to me that she was like crossing certain lines. And I think that actually makes her a more complicated character. And I kind of like that she did it. But there was never even like a flicker of her taking responsibility for that to the point where I was like, okay, does Makai think that it's okay for this teacher to cross these lines? Like we don't even get the slightest hint that maybe she's taking a little bit of advantage of these kids is what I felt. I got that sense too, but I thought it was just a way to like complicate add shades of gray to mm-hmm. the character. I don't think Rebecca Mackay endorses it. I think it just makes Bodhi less of a saint. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think I agree with that reading, Bill. And I agree with the org about the back half. I think we all kind of agree on that. I remember thinking that it's weird that the book has the same flaws that actual true crime podcasts have. When you can feel that, like, you know, Serial or any of the other ones where, like, you can feel them kind of turning their wheels because, like, we have to find another suspect or we have to, like, keep the momentum going, which totally understand if it's, like, a real-life case. But in this case, you could also add, like... Yeah. It's a fiction book. You could add, like, tension and stuff in some scenes because it felt like... The there was a lot of backtracking and trying to figure out the right avenue, which is fine if it's a real life thing. But in this case, it felt a little wheel spinny at the end. Yeah. I mean, I guess I kind of read that as like, it felt like a real podcast. Yeah, it was like, like too authentic. Yeah. Like trying to find an ending to it. Uh, so I just want to throw out an elf out there, which is that both books are very strong, but this is completely different from The Great Believers. Besides, they both have the uh, just one more chapter aspect. And I thought that was really cool. It shows her strength of, as a writer that she can do both genres. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I completely agree. So we probably maybe net out to a similar rating overall. I'm just sort of taking a vibe check here. But my stars... There's one, there's two, there's three, but we're ending at four. Four stars for this book. Mm. I gave it four, two. Pretty sure I gave it three. I'm on the three camp, too. Okay. But high three. High three. Okay. Hmm. Interesting. They're not from New England. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's the difference. That's that extra star. Yeah, I'll keep it on myself. <laughs> I'll keep keep reading Makai. I really like her as an author, and I'm really glad to have a chance to read the book. Okay. So awesome review, Andrew. Toby. Do you have any facts about your friend and my, Rebecca Mackay? Knowing that, yes, we did already cover her once this year. Yes, I do. All right. Mackay, she grew up in Lake Bluff, Illinois. Boom. She is the daughter of linguistics professors Valerie Becker Mackay and Adam Mackay, uh, who was a refugee to the U.S. following the 1956 Hungarian Revolution. Her paternal grandmother, Rosa Ignatz, was a well-known actress and novelist in Hungary. She graduated from the Lake Forest Academy and attended Washington and Lee University, where she graduated with a B.A. in English. And then she got her master's degree from Middlebury College's Breadloaf School of English. The loaf. She has taught at the Iowa Writers' Workshop and is on the MFA faculty faculties of Sierra Nevada University and Northwestern University. She's artistic director of Story Studio Chicago. She's also taught at the Lake Forest College and held the Mackey Chair in Creative Writing at Beloit College in Wisconsin. So she is a working. It's, it's pronounced the Mackay Chair in Wisconsin. <laughs> She has two children and she lives now in Lake Forest, Illinois. More about that later. And she met her husband, John Freeman, at Bread Loaf. The rest of this is from an interview with Boston.com about the book itself. 
Boston asks, where did the seed for this story come from? How did you start thinking about it? Rebecca answers, I always love that question and it's always the one I want authors to answer. And then my problem is always that there are so many seeds. There's not one thing and I suddenly went, wait, I have an idea for a novel. But I will say that I was always going to write a boarding school novel. I live on the campus of the boarding school where my husband teaches and it's just a fascinating kind of community. And I always joke that I wasn't going to write it until I was on my deathbed so that nobody would think it was about them. I ended up making it so different from this school that hopefully nobody would possibly think it was. And a note there, the reason she would be worried about that is because she is living on the campus of the school that she herself attended. Yeah. Mm. So she's like the Fran. Yeah. Fran's a character who, who, who became a teacher at the school who was also there. Rebecca continues, but I always have ideas in the back of my head, several competing novel ideas at any time, and things start to stick to those ideas. So just the idea of people needing to reconvene for a trial or for something that happened a long time ago, that's something that started to capture my imagination and started to stick to this idea of a boarding school novel. And once you get enough things all stuck together, it starts to snowball and it becomes the next novel you're going to write. We all know how that goes, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I have written several novels, yes. <laughs> uh, Boston.com asks, why were you drawn to writing a boarding school novel? Can you speak more on that? Rebecca answers, like I said, I think it's a really fascinating kind of community. I'm also really always frustrated with the ways that boarding schools are misrepresented in novels and movies and TV. There's partly the romanticization of it, like it's always October, the leaves are always changing, and everyone's wearing beautiful sweaters. And that's not real. Some people have ugly sweaters. <laughs> It's also the way people get things wrong. People are imagining what they think boarding schools were like in the 1950s instead of what's going on now. A good boarding school, just like a small liberal arts college, is doing a tremendous job with scholarships and getting kids ready for really rigorous colleges and kids who might not otherwise have had that experience at their local high school, depending on where they're from, either internationally or nationally. And of course, the thing about any school narrative is it's really, really rare to read anything from the teacher point of view or the adult point of view. It's always centered on the students and you're missing a whole huge side of things if you do that. So I wanted to be able to write here from kind of both perspectives. Shout out to the film The Holdovers by Alexander Payne coming <laughs> to your theaters very soon, which is also from both perspectives of the teacher and the student. Okay, thank you. Um, Boston.com asks, the novel deals a lot with tackling the tropes of true crime. Can you talk about what you wanted to do in approaching that genre or what you wanted to draw readers' attention to? And Rebecca answers, I certainly didn't go in with an agenda. I go in with questions. So I can't say I went in trying to draw readers' attention to a certain thing because that feels a little like going in with a hypothesis or something. It was simply just what I wanted to write about. I'm someone who's always been drawn to unsolved mysteries, historical crimes, certain cases in the news that capture my imagination. And obviously, I'm not alone in that. There's been a lot of renewed interest right now just because there's been a change in medium where podcasting has opened up a lot of those stories. But of course, this is something that humans have been obsessed with forever. You look at the way that newspapers covered murdered trials in the 1920s, the lurid details. There's nothing new, but there is a sort of proliferation of conversations around that. Sometimes, as I depict a little bit in the book, there's kind of a creepy fascination. I have a character who is mostly on YouTube, but he feels a real personal ownership of this case where he actually does not know any of the people involved. But in other cases, there are chances for internet sleuthing and podcasting to draw attention to cases that really do need to be examined. Whether that's because they're about marginalized people who won't be covered in the news or because the technology and forensics have changed and we can look at them now with a different lens. If we can just invest the resources into them. There's also been some tremendous innocence project work that's happened online and in podcasts. So I'm absolutely not going in thinking, I want to show the readers X, Y, and Z. It's just that this is what I'm obsessed with. So I want to write about it. Nice. Freaking nice. And here is the last question, our last little bit of Mackay for the episode. Boston says, now that the novel's done, is there something that you hope readers take away or think about as they're reading? Rebecca says, I was just talking about wrongful incarceration. And I do think that's something that, of course, I would love for people to look more into after reading this if that's not something they already know about. So you could look at this on two levels. I could say on the big issues level, yeah, gosh, I would love it if people looked into wrongful incarceration or what happens in states like New Hampshire where interrogations do not need to be recorded by law. So you have no idea what happened in that interrogation room. All you have is the end product. And that's bizarre and unconscionable, right? So there's that. And then there's the personal level. I would think I would love for people to think about the systems that they're a part of without realizing it. Not a guilt trip, but we do need to be aware of the ways that we're a part of, say, the American carceral system without necessarily thinking about that on a daily basis. For Bodhi, she's part of the institutions of whiteness without having given that too much thought. She's also part of this institution of the boarding school and all of its privileges, even though she saw herself as fundamentally such an outsider. She's still someone who was much more of an insider than she realized. And maybe also just to cast an eye back on your own adolescence, your own high school experience, and think about, on the one hand, what you put up with that you probably shouldn't have, and on the other, what maybe you took part of that you shouldn't have. 
A chilling sign-off from Rebecca Mackay. Your friend and mine. And adding to my nightly anxieties, uh, Rebecca Mackay. Boom. <laughs> All right. Well, that is I Have Some Questions for You by Rebecca Mackay. Four stars. Great review, Andrew. And great facts, Toby. Thank you, Toby. Yeah. Well, Andrew certainly learned some things in his review on that one. He made a spiritual journey to better himself. Bailey, know anything about that? I, I mean, I, I guess I would say that I read a book this week, yes. <laughs> uh <Uh-oh>. oh <laughs> I read the book Siddhartha by Herman Hesse. You can't mess with the Hesse. Nice. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Before I go into it, I think we talked about this before, but did you guys all read this in school? Yeah, I read it freshman year of high school. Dylan? High school, yeah. I'd been out for school. Oh. I read it in college Ooh. on my own dang volition. Wow, so Dylan and Toby both smoked cloves and were reading books. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> yep. That's right, that's right. Um. Okay, so I will give you my review of this book, Siddhartha. I will give you my class book report with the <laughs> caveat that I was going to write down a a lot of notes and then my child would not let me go um, and was literally like holding on to my leg as I was walking and so I was picking her up with one leg so this is going to be off the cuff no notes okay sick Siddhartha is a book about man's search for meaning it follows our main character guess what his name is Herman Hesse Siddhartha <laughs> yep Siddhartha <laughs> <laughs> the name is Sid Siddhartha <laughs> Siddhartha is the son of a Brahmin, an Indian Brahmin, which is to say like the highest caste in Indian society, priests. And he sets out to find meaning for himself. He's grown up in a Buddhist community, um, family, but he wants to find meaning for himself outside of what he's learned from teachers and teaching. Um, And so he sets out with his friend, in air quotes, Govinda, to find meaning. And they split off and Siddhartha follows his own sort of version of the Eightfold Path and finds his own version of Nirvana on Earth, as it were. Standard Hero's Journey. So a lot of people have read this book in school. I want to open it up <laughs> to the group. What? No, no, no. Apparently, <laughs> yeah. I, I read this in 2004 or five. No. Yeah. Okay, no, I'm just going to say this. Why do you think they teach this book in school? Is it just like as a way to open up to like Eastern religion or like why, why this book? I'll say I didn't have to read it in school. A huge mistake to assign this in school. Yeah. Are you freaking kidding me? There's no way this would mean anything anything to a high schooler, and I bet they would hate it. Bailey has hit the nail on the head as to why my school assigned it, which is that it was a, like, sort of attempt by the English and history department to work together to teach world religion by, like, aligning history of religion and what you were reading in the English class and then having a big discussion about it. And this was, like, the material you were supposed to read to come into it. So they're trying for a twofer. So you guys hit the nail on the head with both of those points. Number one, when I was a teacher and I taught freshmen, they tried to get me to teach this book because because they wanted me to work with the history teacher who was working on like early civilizations and religion. But that teacher did not follow what I wanted to do and was reading Tale of Two Cities with her kids. So like, I hope she's not listening to this podcast, but like I was not going to work with her. It wasn't the best of times. <laughs> but... but also, yeah, this is not a good book for kids. Like, <laughs> no, I would say a pro to teaching it and to reading it is that it's only 150 pages, you know, so it's a relatively quick read in terms of reading the words on the page, but getting meaning out of it. Toby, I agree. I feel like it's just made to be a lecture about what is Buddhism? What is who it was the Buddha? What's the story, et cetera, et cetera. And Bailey, I do think that's an important context. This is actually like semi a like historical, like imagining of the history of the Buddha? Yes and no. The Buddha is a character in it. Siddhartha meets him and is basically like, eh, I don't want to talk to him anymore. I'm going to figure it out for myself. But you hear about the Buddha's life and right. sitting under the tree, meditating, etc., etc. Dumb question, because I thought when reading this, this was like, I thought it was like a historical book telling the religious part of it, right? No. I don't think it's 100% accurate. I think, I mean, I am not a scholar of Eastern religions. I'm not Buddhist. I, I didn't grow up in this community. But from what I I know it doesn't seem 100% accurate or 100% inaccurate. It's kind of trying to do both, but also to be the authority on Buddhism, introducing it to Christian people written by a white dude. And that, I think, is complicated. You know how many people I've told that I'm an expert in Buddhism because I've read this book? Well, I bet people do. I bet people do say that. (laughs) So this is all, you know, all of that relates to my orcs and elves. The story itself is fine. Like if you have read The Prophet, if you have an understanding of 
of a hero's journey of, you know, losing um, a sense for worldly possessions and instead looking for meaning in other ways, connection with people, then um, peace within oneself. You can kind of get an idea of what the story is going to be. And there is some loveliness to that, especially in the end, the sense of peace that Siddhartha, I mean, spoiler alert, finds (laughs) and his... Whoa, whoa. (laughs) (laughs) and his understanding of just um i had a friend in college who was buddhist and he described it as like that ball's gonna roll off the table it's just gonna roll off you just have to accept it it's not that's just part of life it's not good or bad it just is that sense of things so you get that sense and there is a beauty to it however i just found it problematic i didn't understand what was taught in schools as i referenced um i didn't understand why this man was writing this book i would rather have it from the community because Definitely, there's an element of, what's the word, exoticism. Also, it's like he just throws in these words from Buddhist philosophy without explaining them, just sort of in a way that people name drop. That's kind of what it felt like to me. (laughs) Also, I found it annoying that Siddhartha and all the characters speak in the third person. That's just a a me thing. (laughs) That's just a Bailey thing. I also didn't like, and I mean, I guess he's rewarded for it in the end, because as I said, spoiler alert, he does find peace, but that he doesn't really want to learn from the Buddha. He wants to learn from himself. So this is a quote to give you a sense. Page 39. Yes, he thought, breathing deeply, I will no longer try to escape from Siddhartha. To be clear, this is Siddhartha speaking. I will no longer try to escape from Siddhartha. I will no longer devote my thoughts to Atman and the sorrows of the world. I will no longer mutilate and destroy myself in order to find a secret behind the ruins. I will no longer study Yoga Veda, Adhartha Veda, or aestheticism, or any other teachings. I will learn from myself, be my own pupil. I will learn from myself the secret of Siddhartha. Yeah. Any comments? <laughs> no, oh, I, I'm understanding your notes, Bale. Yep. Yeah. Introspection is good, but it just felt like a, this is the literal Buddha, but I'm going to learn from myself. <laughs> um, I'll throw out something that I found interesting that I didn't have time to Google if there are papers about this, but there's a lot of homoeroticism in this book. And that's a negative for you, Bailey? No, wow. it's a po- no, this is a positive. <laughs> Google Siddhartha plus Govinda forever, question mark. <laughs> Govinda is Siddhartha's best friend. I'm not going to go into it because I think it kind of speaks for itself, but I'll just read you a quote. Um, this is how Govinda feels about Siddhartha, okay? Govinda loved him more than anybody else. He loved Siddhartha's eyes and clear voice. He loved the way he walked, his complete grace of movement. He loved everything that Siddhartha did and said. And above all, he loved his intellect, his fine ardent thoughts, his strong will, his high vocation. Govinda knew that he would not become an ordinary Brahmin, a lazy sacrificial official, avaricious dealer in magical sayings, a conceited worthless orator, a wicked slide priest, or just a good stupid sheep amongst a large herd. No. And he, Govinda, did not want to become any of these, not a Brahmin like 10,000 others of their kind. He wanted to follow Siddhartha, the beloved, the magnificent. And if he ever became a god, if he ever entered the all-radiant, then Govinda wanted to follow him as his friend, his companion, his servant, his lance-bearer, his shadow. So they're friends, right? Yep. (laughs) I will say it's interesting that you mentioned that because there's quite a lot of that in another book of his that I've read called Narcissus and Goldman that I actually liked quite a lot better than Siddhartha. But I think he's trying to play with the language of like almost biblical or religious allegory and people do a lot of loving of each other um, in those contexts. To be clear, I understand that's what Hesse thinks he's doing, but you know, (laughs) versus the relationships that Siddhartha has with women, which are very problematic. Yeah. I don't know. I just think that, you know, maybe these men love each other. Yes, Dylan, did you find anything in Google? Well, there's a lot of things in Google. One of the top posts on our Herman Hesse is a really long essay on bisexuality of Hesse's characters. So. Oh, hmm. Hmm. there is um, one time Siddhartha has a dream that he starts kissing his friend Govinda, but then she turns into a woman. Guys, don't worry. Boo. <laughs> anyway, this book is fine. Three stars, I guess. <laughs> yeah. It broke you. It, it kind of broke me. This is the weirdest review I've ever given. But you get a sense of what's good and bad. And am I going to read it again? No. Am I that mad that Maggie tore the cover off it? No. Um, you know, <laughs> the cover was going to be torn off. It is what it is. Three stars. Okay. I do feel duty bound to jump in and just be like, I liked this one. I liked Narcissus and Goldman. I liked Steppenwolf. I think he is definitely outdated and he can be hard to get through. But if you're curious about these books, I would recommend maybe checking him out. Who knows? Let us know what you think if you check him out. Uh, Toby, do you have any facts on Herman Hesse? Yes, I do. Okay. Herman Karl Hesse was born on the 2nd of July, 1877. He was a German-Swiss poet, novelist, and painter. His best-known books include 
include Demian Steppenwolf. Yes, the band Steppenwolf is named after that book. Siddhartha and the Glass Bead Game, each of which explores an individual's search for authenticity, self-knowledge, and spirituality. In 1946, he received the Nobel Prize in Literature. Ooh. So he was born on July 2nd, 1877, in the quiet town of C-A-L-W. How would you pronounce it? Call. <laughs> it was in the then kingdom of Württemberg, which is now part of modern day Germany. He was born to extremely religious parents whose parents were also extremely religious. Uh, from a very, very young age, he was just sort of steeped in a kind of hardcore, very inward looking type of Christianity. Um, and his family was also notoriously plagued by episodes of depression and anxiety. So what a way to start. He was known as a kid as a pretty rebellious kid. He kind of banged around his household asking too many questions. He was sent to the Protestant Theological Seminary in Malbron and expelled from there. Heard of it? <laughs> Freaking heard of it. When he was 17, he went to go work as an apprentice in a couple bookshops in Basel, Switzerland. He was doing a lot of reading during this period of his life. He particularly liked Nietzsche, Schopenhauer, and a bunch of Eastern philosophies, all of which would eventually deeply influence his writing. Um, the first thing he published was a couple of collections of poems that did not sell really at all. But then in 1903, he published his first novel, Peter Kamensind, which actually was a success. It revealed his fascination with nature, the human psyche, and the conflict between individualism and societal expectations. I just have to jump in real quick, Toby, and say there is a moment that Siddhartha shares a poem with a lady in order to impress her and sleep with her. <laughs> and the poem is bad, but the lady loves the poem and says it's the best thing she's ever heard. So just, you know, no commentary. A little no bit of fantasy fulfillment there for yeah. Hassa. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he realizes now that he can make a living as a writer. He's very happy. There's a very enigmatic sentence here in his biography, which says he finally married Maria Bernoulli of the famous family of mathematicians. We all know the Bernoullis, right? Yeah. Uh, he married her in 1904. And here's the interesting part. While her father, who disapproved of the relationship, was away for the weekend. <laughs> <laughs> he really, really took care of that. Respect, man. <laughs> That'll teach you to go away, dad. <laughs> <laughs> Things went, um, unfortunately, pretty bad, pretty fast in their relationship. In 1911, Hesse left their relationship and Switzerland for a long trip to Sri Lanka and Indonesia uh, without his wife. He also visited Sumatra, Borneo and Burma. But, quote, the physical experience was to depress him, end quote. What? Uh, he had been seeking some spiritual or religious inspiration. He did not find it. But the journey made a big impression on the rest of his work. Uh, when he came back, he and his wife and his children moved to Bern in 1912, but the change of environment did not solve his marriage problems, um, and he wrote about it in the novel Roshalde uh, in 1914. Now, other things were happening in the world. World War One, for example. When war broke out, Hesse registered himself as a volunteer with the Imperial Army. He said that he could not sit inactively by a warm fireplace while other young authors were dying on the front. Uh, he was immediately found severely unfit for combat duty. He had <laughs> eye problems. He had nerve problems. He was just not built to be on the front line. Um, but he was assigned to service involving the care of prisoners of war. He was a staunch pacifist, and this was not in line with the prevailing supranationalist fervor in Germany at the time. Hesse had become a Swiss citizen by this time, but he was writing lots of letters and kind of publishing his opinion that he opposed the war. And this made him very deeply unpopular with the German press of the time and many of his own contemporaries. I don't want your stupid war anyway. I'm going to write mm. essays about it. How dare you say I'm unfit? <laughs> <laughs> I also like the idea of him showing up to the medic and then just be like, oh, no, 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 man. <laughs> no, 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 no. So he published Roshalde, as I mentioned earlier, in 1914. Um, the novel is very personal. It talks about love, family, and the pursuit of artistic creativity. And it lays pretty bare the struggles that he was facing in his own marriage, uh, including his eventual separation from Bernoulli, who, as he revealed, suffered from severe schizophrenia. After World War I, um, he basically was exiled from Germany. He was opposed to the Weimar Republic, um, and he was completely disillusioned with the political and social climate of the country. Okay, well, that's the right choice, Herman. Good job. Yep. <laughs> he settled in Montagnola in Switzerland, where he would spend the remainder of his life. During this time, he was really struggling internally. He wrote a book about it, as he does, called Demian, published in 1919. And... In Montagnola, he rented four small rooms in the castle-like building called the Casa Camusi. Um, here, he basically kept writing. He 
wrote a bunch of books here that had various levels of success, and he actually seemed to have found some happiness, which is nice for him. Uh, in 1922, Hesse's novella Siddhartha appeared, which showed uh, his love for Indian culture and Buddhist philosophy. Um, in 1924, he married the singer Ruth Wegner, the daughter of the Swiss writer Lisa Wegner and aunt of Marette Oppenheim. He observed the rise to power of Nazism in Germany with epic concern, as you would. In 1933, Bertolt Brecht and Thomas Mann made their travels from Germany into exile, each aided, uh, at least slightly, by Hesse. That was kind of his major work against Hitler's suppression of art and literature. Um, his third wife was Jewish, and he had publicly expressed his opposition to anti-Semitism long before then. According to Hesse, he, quote, survived the years of the Hitler regime and the Second World War through the 11 years of work that he spent on his novel, The Glass Bead Game. Uh, it was printed in 1943 in Switzerland, and it was his last novel. He was awarded the Nobel Prize in Literature in 1946. The Glass Bead Game um, is supposed to be his magnum opus, his big one that I haven't read yet. I got to read it. And the novel is set in a future utopian society where the pursuit of knowledge and self-improvement is paramount. And it reflects Hesse's enduring interest in the intersection of art, culture, and spirituality. Hermann Hesse passed away on August 9th, 1962 in Montagnola. And that's Hesse. That's the Hesse Expressa. <laughs> it's the Hesse Expressa. Pulling into station. Toot toot. I'm sorry. From beyond the grave, um, Herman Hesse, I, I've been shading you a little bit, but you know, you have a lot of success. So Siddhartha by Herman Hesse. Three stars. <laughs> Good job, Toby. Thank you. Um, Andrew, do you have any fun games like about search for meaning or questions you have for us or something? Yes. Uh, this will take three hours and... Uh, you oh, can pay me afterwards <laughs> mm -hmm. because I'm going to fix your whole life right now. Oh. oh, yeah. All right. Well, we don't have time for that. So instead, I have a game. Ooh. All right. So the name of the game this week is I have some podcast for you. <gasps> and the way this game will work, sometimes you finish reading your book pretty close to the when you have to record the podcast. So well, the game you make <laughs> is uh, pretty basic. <laughs> I get it. Inspired by the podcasts. And I have some questions for you. And the fact that Herman Hesse has a name that has two H's to start the first <laughs> and last name. I have created five fake podcasts that each are two words, both starting with H's. Nice, nice. I am going to read a short log line of those podcasts, and you will be tasked with guessing the name. So, mm. for example, if I said Dad Central with infrequent and long episodes about history, the answer would be Hardcore History. That's a real podcast. The rest of them are mm. not real. A little bit of format for how we'll do this. There will be a first to buzz in gets to answer format, but we will keep alternating answers until we get it correct or you give up. So we will always Got award it. the point unless you give up. There is one opportunity to get a bonus point, which is if I like your answer much better than mine, I will give you a bonus answer if you make up a better <laughs> podcast name. Sound good? Nice. Yep. And you can buzz in by saying podcast. Okay. Got it. Here we go. A podcast dedicated to hating on the star of Logan and Australia. Um, podcast. Bailey. Hugh Hater. You have one of the words correct, but in the wrong place. Toby. Hating Hugh? Uh, Hugh is now in the correct place. Bailey? Hate Hugh. All right. I said hate in the clue. I'm not going to have that in the actual <laughs> answer. Podcast. Toby? Horrible Hugh. That's one point for Toby right there. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, I want to rescind that and say hate Hugh again. <laughs> <laughs> you get five points. For that. Just kidding. Okay. So Toby has won the first round. One for the Tobe man. Question number two. A podcast about good strategies for maximizing productivity and looking good doing it podcast a toby hot huberman <laughs> the first word is hot i don't know why you picked huberman it's andrew huberman he's he, he you know he talks about productivity and stuff and get up at five and taking a cold shower all right so bailey do you have a simpler way of saying a good strategy for maximizing productivity hot handsomes <laughs> toby hot highly efficient <laughs> bailey <laughs> hot hey, business school <laughs> Toby? Uh, hot histrionics. I don't know. I give up. I think I'm giving this one up. Okay, Toby's giving this one up. Bailey, again, what is another way of saying good strategies for maximizing productivity? Hot homework. All right. No, <laughs> Bailey, Bailey, I assume you give up? Yeah. <laughs> hot habits. Hot oh. habits. <laughs> there are 
in fact, a lot of podcasts that are called like hot mess habits, hot mom habits. This one's just hot habits. Mm -hmm. I couldn't find a direct match for it. All right. Got it. No points were awarded and you should feel bad about yourselves, you two. I think if you had known who Andrew Huberman was, you would have given me the bonus point, but that's Mm, fine. But I don't. But I don't. I'm really proud of this next one. Maybe you guys can redeem yourselves. A podcast dedicated to the pork products of Texas's largest city. Uh, podcast. Bailey. Houston Ham. Toby. What? Oh, that was exactly going to be my... It was exactly going to be yours, or was it going to be slightly no, different? No, uh, Ham and Houston. Ham Houston? Ham Houston is correct. Toby gets the point. What? What? <laughs> what? Right. what? 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 That's right. I'm sorry. Ham Houston is better because it's a pun on the name Sam Houston. <laughs> I agree. Toby gets the point, and I uh, remind you that I'm the only one who decides how points are delivered, and any complaining will be factored into later <laughs> scoring. I didn't complain. I just said, hmm, really loudly. Okay. <laughs> All right. Toby has two points and can win the game with one correct answer. Next podcast. The guests of a former popular YouTube slash Comedy Central TV show debrief their episodes the morning after with host Derek Waters. Oh. Um. Podcast. Toby. Hungover history. That is correct. Uh, Toby's hitting home runs every day. That was a good one. That was good. I kept thinking drunk history, but yes, they are. Yep. Yep. Yeah. yep, yep. Morning after was the key there. Toby, you've won, but let's just throw this last yes. clue in because I'd listen to this podcast. Mr. Azaria hosts a weekly show featuring different guests with the weirdest nickname for Henry. Hank thanks. Hank Hank Hanks. Hankies. Hanky. Podcast. Toby. <laughs> Hanks Hanks. Uh no, Hank is in the right place. Just throw him out there. No no more buzzing needed in. Harvey. No, Hank is correct. The first word is Hank. Hank Henry's. Hanks. Hanks hangs. Hanks hangs. Hanks hangs is correct. There we oh, go. Right. Toby is four for four. <laughs> I also would have accepted the Hank house. Ah. I win. Uh, yeah, Bailey, you completely <laughs> lose. <laughs> uh, but thank you for playing. That was I enjoyed that, um, even if it uh, was maybe one of our more disorganized games. I, I liked, liked it. it. Good job. Good job, Toby. Thank you. All right. I'm going to need to brush up on my alliteration. Um, Dylan. Hello, Dylan. Hello. It's time for you to come out of your shell. Uh Um, It's time for you to choose books at random for us to read next. It's time for Dylan to do The Choosing. Coming out of my cage. I'm doing just fine. The Choosing. (laughs) And he's Mr. Brightside. Thank you, Dylan, for The Choosing. The Choosing. Bailey. Uh, Yeah. It's getting a little dark in here, actually. We should have turned on the lights a little bit. Um, Do you have anything we can use? Like, uh, we might have to start a fire. Do you have any mirrors or anything around here? So we can read number 11, Bonfire of the Vanities by Tom Wolfe. Oh, boy. That was a stretch getting there. (laughs) Let it burn, Usher. I'm going to be real with you. This is a book we got from a used bookstore together, Dylan, you and me. And I know nothing about it besides that it was really big in the 80s. Don't know what it's about. We'll find out. I have DNF'd this one because it was too depressing. Oh, fun. Okay. Oh, nice. Bailey, enjoy. (laughs) (laughs) All right. What does Andrew have? Yeah, this is the first time you haven't made me feel worried about it during the podcast, which might be worse. (laughs) Oh, okay. So you're saying that I don't scare you? You're saying you're a big guy? Oh, boy. Uh Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. You're saying that you're number 59 tough by Paul Beatty? I am very tough. Thank you. Mm. <laughs> All right. This is cool. This So Paul Beatty, he wrote The Sellout and um, The White Boy Shuffle, which I've read, but I'm excited to read this one. Nice. So that means in two weeks on the podcast, I will be reading Bonfire of the Vanities by Tom Wolfe, and Toby is reading Driving Force by Dick Francis. Oh. About horses, guys. It's about horses. Yeah. Thanks for listening to the To Read List. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can email the to read list podcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Goodreads, Instagram, and the Storygraph at the To Read List Podcast. And if you are a student at a boarding school in New Hampshire producing your own podcast about a murder on your campus and want to get into the podcasting community, I recommend rating us five stars and leaving a review, and we'll do the same to yours. It's a great way to have us find (laughs) new listeners and boost our profile. And if you have a friend whose relationship to you is sexually ambiguous and you're both on a quest for truth together, tell them about our podcast. I'm sure they'd like to hear about it as opposed to hearing about your thoughts on the universe. But really, tell your friends about this podcast. It really uh, spreads awareness and it helps get our name out there. We appreciate it. Thanks to Toby and Andrew for co-hosting the podcast with me, to Dylan for sound recording, and to Miss Jillian Beth Durkee for composing our intro song. See you in two weeks. Happy reading. Books, books, books. books. books.